Before we start, I want to give a mention to Draper Esprit, a publicly listed VC fund that invests in high growth European tech companies with global ambitions. Their portfolio includes companies like Revolut, UiPath, Kazoo, Graphcore, Trustpilot, Isai, Revelin, Aircore, and many, many other top European tech companies. Draper Esprit writes checks of 5 to 50 million US dollars, and they focus on sectors like consumer, fintech, health tech, deep tech, enterprise, and SaaS. Their investment team has an incredible depth of experience, both as operators and investors, that helps businesses scale globally. If that sounds like the sort of investor you want to work with, get in touch with them at draperesprit.com. That's D-R-A-P-E-R-E-S-P-R-I-T dot com. Make the future, make it better, make it happen. I would say that I've I've learned most from the moments in entrepreneurship where I have been doing the most. Um, and that's what I really believe. And so I think, you know, and that's why I, I believe in, in the form of online education that I believe in, because I believe the problem with, you know, the university system is they don't teach you by doing, they teach you by mm-hmm. listening. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, the number one ranked entrepreneurship podcast for business owners, entrepreneurs, and those aspiring to be so. The aim of this show is to showcase the world's most inspiring and interesting people who've decided to screw it, just do it. We offer 20% inspiration and 80% education, giving you the tools and advice to start, grow, and scale a successful business. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, podcast agency owner with a number one podcast and startup advisor to global startup generator and early stage VC, Antler. Each week, I release two episodes, a Q&A every Wednesday with one of the world's most inspiring figures, plus a solo episode every Saturday where I cover the challenges that all of us are facing as entrepreneurs. Welcome to a very special episode episode 276 of Screw It, Just Do It with me, Alex, and my guest this week, Gargan Biani. This episode is special for a number of reasons. My guest, undoubtedly so. Special also in that for the first time, this show has been produced in partnership with somebody else. That somebody else happens to be Draper Esprit. Now, a number of former guests on this very show have received investment from Draper Esprit, the likes of Trust Pilots Peter Holton Mulman, Gray's CEO Anthony Fletcher, and Cedar's Jeff Lynn. So I see it as very much a natural coming together. Now, Gargan, I've wanted to host him on this show for years and years. He was the co founder and president of Udemy, the world's largest online education company now worth $2 billion, and also co-founder and CEO of Sprig, a food delivery company. Now, in June of this year, Gargan tweeted, eight years ago, I got fired as president and co-founder of Udemy, a now $2 billion unicorn. This is a tough story to share. I'll try my best to be honest. So that was my call to action to reach out and see if I could get Gargan on the show for you. Turns out, of all places, he was actually in the UK, in Oxford, and was coming to the end of a near three-year nomadic existence, traveling the world. Even more interesting. In this episode, we chat about a whole bunch of things. Honestly, it is such a super interesting story, and he tells it very well. We talk about learning through doing instead of listening, which has the greatest impact. Talk about self-reflection and how it helps you stay on course of your goals. We talk about not getting caught up with what people think. Screw it, just do it. Gargan Biani. Awesome. So we are uh, recording live. Uh, so first question for you is, is how has the last, say, 90, 100 days been for you? Uh, you're currently in uh, Oxford, I believe, and you've been here for a little while, um, but you have been 
back and forth to the US you mentioned earlier. So yeah, how, how's the whole experience been for you? Have, you? have you kind of given your time to kind of reflect back on it yet or do you still feel you're kind of in the middle of it all? I, I can't say I've reflected too much, but I could try, try right now. Um, I, I think that it has been, it's been surreal. I think nobody, no, I don't know anyone who wouldn't use a term like that to describe <laughs> the experience of seeing the world sort of uh, both uh, deal with and reckon with the challenges of this virus, but simultaneously also watch the world deal with itself. Because I think mm. that has been equally, uh, or if not far more disappointing and difficult to watch um, from my perspective. And I, uh, for me personally, it's been an odd time because uh, I'm in online education and uh, you know, Udemy and also um, some of my new projects that I'm working on are, are doing quite well. And so, whereas for most people, this has been a pretty tough time and I'm extremely aware of that. And uh, simultaneously for me, at least not just from a business perspective, but even from a personal perspective, it's been quite a positive time. Mm. Um, and this is the first recession I've ever been in that has been positive. I've been extremely affected by the last uh, few recessions. Um, my family lost all of its money in the dot-com bust. Um, and then in 2008, I was looking for a job and was, was uh, you know, a, a new graduate. And so, and I, and I had no real uh, marketable skills outside of a university degree. And so, or uni, as you say here. Um, mm. And so this re recession and sort of challenge has been interesting because I feel like I've been on the, the, the positive end of it, whatever positive there can be. And uh, it's been a little bit internally uh, confronting to be in that position. Mm. And if you use this time when you talk about you've got, you got some new, new projects coming out as well, have you used this time to, to spend more time developing those or have you come up with you know, completely new ideas during this time? Yeah. So as, as you know, Alex, I spent the last three years nomadic um, and during those three years, uh, two of them were completely on what I would call like uh, sabbatical or, or vacation, essentially. I, I took mm -hmm. two years off and traveled all over the world. And so I wasn't uh, working until about September of last year when I decided I was going to spend the year trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and, and maybe do some projects and consulting along the way. And so in January, I had started to decide that I wanted to start teaching and taking online courses again, because I thought that that was uh, an area I wanted to get back to. And uh, so I had already been working on business ideas and then COVID happened and COVID only accelerated my work because now I could not get distracted by any sort of outside socializing or, you know, uh, like I was still sort of in vacation mode a little bit. It's, it takes hard after two years to wow. sort of immediately get back to a, you know, 40, 50 hour work week. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, and so I, uh, I would say COVID has accelerated um, the trajectory I was already on, but it has right. not really changed that trajectory. I mean, I'm still working on what I would say is the same thing as what I probably would have worked on if, if, if January, if, if January and February had been the norm. Mm. And was that to, to come back to that conclusion as to, you know, not conclusion, maybe just, you know, iteration of, of what you're going to do next. But how long did it take you to, to come to the conclusion that this is what I wanted to do next after like traveling for, for those you know, near on two, two and a half years? Yeah. So for two years, I tried to avoid thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um, mm. There were some episodes where I, of, of two to three months, where I looked into uh, real career paths for myself. I looked into conservation when I was in Africa and started to learn a little bit about it. Although I would say that was still very vacation because I spent just a lot of time on national parks and watching animals and talking to, you know, uh, safari experts and things. Um, and then I also looked into politics for a few year for, for a few months in the states, and that was much more intensive and, and fairly work like. But mm. um, uh, I still took months and months off in between that. And so, uh, starting September, I gave myself twelve months, and I went through what I would call a very sort of regimented twelve month ideation process, uh, where I tried um, a different a, a variety of different projects to see what I liked. 
including uh, I, I tried to write a book. I um, tried to do some consulting for companies that I thought were interesting. And then I started to teach and take online courses. And I eventually settled on the idea that I wanted to work on about 12 months later. Um, so this is about what this is 11 months from then. Um, and I think I by September of this year, I'll have figured out exactly what I want to do. Okay, and and, and you you able to uh, talk about exactly what you, you're going to be launching now, or is it something that's still going to? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about I'll talk about what I'm launching in, in September. It's not it's not clear where this is going to go. So, right. uh, but in September, essentially, I'm I'm starting uh, what's called the ideation boot camp. Um, which is basically an online uh, immersive cohort-based course that uh, is going to help people uh, come up with their next great business idea and execute on it. And I do this in partnership with uh, my friends at The Hustle um, and uh, Sam Parr. Uh, and the two of us have been working on this and already taught one version of this already together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it was phenomenally successful. I think like we asked people uh, to rate it from one to 10 uh, at the end. And we got a 9.5 or 9.6 rating from our students, which is unheard awesome. of in online education mm. um, since they paid, you know, a great, a great deal of money for it. Um, and so we're, we're really excited to launch this and it's really the first iteration of what I want to do next. It's me uh, giving back to the entrepreneurial community that has given me so much and helping provide a more tactical and how to way of figuring out, you know, what I do, do I work on? How do I research this idea? What tools are there on the internet that can make this an easier and more uh, structured process? How do I evaluate whether this idea is going to work? How do I build an MVP to test and iterate on this idea? And then how do I get initial traction? And we teach that soup to nuts in a, a, a short course that um, we, fe we feel like is far more detailed and more uh, sort of uh, uh, interactive uh, than anything that we've seen on the internet today. And, and when, when you say interactive then, what, what kinds of things have you, you thought about or that you've trialed uh, at the moment then? Well, traditionally, online courses are consume at your own pace. So yeah. if you go on Udemy, you know, you pay 10 to $100 and you can take the course whenever you want. Um, we plan on doing it quite differently. We plan on having a cohort-based online course where everyone starts at the same time. Right. There are going to be recorded videos for people to watch so that they uh, are able to get the content that is most efficiently delivered via recordings. I'm a verbose speaker in live sessions, but in a recording, I can do multiple takes and make sure that I don't waste your time. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, the recordings are probably only 10 or 20% of the course, whereas in Udemy course, they're 90% of the course. Yeah. The other 80% of the course is interaction with your fellow students. And so you get to meet other people who are in the same position and you do projects and exercises and, and, um, and works, workshops with them so that you can actually learn uh, not just by listening or by watching, but also by doing. And that's what makes this course particularly special is you know, we will put you through exercises and if you dedicate yourself to them, you will actually accomplish uh, goals during the course uh, that will help you towards building a, a company. And, and you're also going to get that accountability, aren't you? Because I find that when I, I launched my podcast course last year with a mutual contact of, of us, um, Charlotte from, um, from Avid, and I found... The cohort-based approach has worked far better. So many more students have launched the podcast since doing that. And then this year I trialed, uh, you know, people could join at any time. Um, there was no set date. There was less interaction instead of like a weekly um, Q&A with, with me, kind of hands-on. Um, and it's just completely changed the dynamics. I'm going to go back to the cohort-based because there was all of this all the other students holding each other accountable. Let's say I'm launching my course in, you know, 60 days, you know, I, when are you going to be launching your podcast in? Um, whereas now it's just the, the interaction is gone. And you'd think during the last lockdown period, interaction would have gone up. So I'm, I'm going to reverse engineer it back to the way it was. Cause I, th I think, I think you're right in that regard. hundred percent. You're going to get more interaction, more accountability and ultimately more success, more people 
launching companies. That's right. Yeah. And, and this isn't just for entrepreneurs. It's also for intrapreneurs. So we teach the same skills that you would want to launch a new line of business or launch a new product. Um, and yeah, I think that the interactivity dramatically increases the value for the student um, by 10, 20 X, honestly. Mm. And something like that, really interesting. So I've been like a, a mentor with Virgin Startup and a business advisor with Virgin Startup, Richard Brands is not for profit. And then the last year I've been working with uh, Antler, who I don't know if you've, you're aware of them. Yeah. yeah. So I know like Magnus, the, the founder there pretty well. Um, and what, what do you think of that, that approach that, that they're taking out of interest with, with Antler, where you, you're literally chucking, say, 100 people in a room and saying, right, the next six weeks, you're going to come up with the idea for a business and you're going to meet your co-founders. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Because I've got mixed thoughts on it. Uh, I, I like the, the model in general. I think, you know, pioneered by Entrepreneur First, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, also there's a company and then Antler uh, a, is the most international of them all, I think, and pr- perhaps has the most locations. And then uh, On Deck, uh, which is a company I'm quite close to in Silicon Valley um, that is really starting to build an amazing set of people. And I think ultimately this, is a, this can work for a set of people. There will be a set of people who want to start companies who don't have co-founders or don't have collaborators, or they don't even need to meet their co-founders in the program, at least at On Deck. They just have other people who are at the same stage as them. And it's a highly immersive experience it mostly works for people who want to start startups. So the model is yeah. much better for people who want to build potential billion dollar companies and uh, people who want to, you know, uh, have a community of people that they can learn from. Uh, our course is similar, but, but different in the sense that we're almost entirely focused on teaching new things. So you will learn new things about how to start a company far more in depth than what I believe is the curriculum at any of these programs, because these programs are primarily driven to connect you with your yeah. peers. And yeah. we use the connection with the peers as a way to teach you, but it's not about building a company with your peers. You may or may not do that, but we're about teaching you what we've learned through, you know, Sam has, has, uh, analyzed and runs a, a media company that analyzes hundreds, if not thousands of businesses. Um, and then of course I built uh, probably six, six to 10 different businesses over my career um, and a few different startups. So mm. that's uh, that's what we do, but I love the model of Antler and I hope, I hope they succeed. Um, I'm, I'm personally, of course, a little bit of a fan of on deck and entrepreneur first, as I know those people a little bit better, but yeah, as far as I can tell, they're all, they're all, I'm optimistic about it. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. And I, I, I got on like a house on fire with with, with Magnus, and I, I, you know, love the vision, love the love the, the global feel to it. And um, I, I think you're right. Like, you know, my thoughts were this is going to suit a certain type of entrepreneur. It's not going to be a one size fits all at all. But there's no right reason why they shouldn't. Um, you know, just by the sheer numbers, I think as well. Of and the variety of the businesses that they're investing in and the investors that they manage to get on board as well, that it will be successful in some way, shape or form. Sure. I mean, whether Antler itself will be a profitable uh, business venture is, is a question I don't know the answer to, but I know mm-hmm. that if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking at starting a company, look, it's, it's freaking hard, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's difficult. And so anything you can do to increase your chances of success uh, in terms of the first couple hurdles, which is raising your first set of capital and finding uh, co-founders is valuable. Now for the most uh, sort of promising uh, startup founders, they may have a set of options of which path to take. And for them, I would say evaluating the difference between on deck Antler, entrepreneur first and which one fits them is probably worthwhile. But if mm-hmm. you can only get into one of these, I'd still probably recommend taking it. And, yeah. you know, when we started uh, Udemy, actually, I didn't start Udemy. I, I met my co-founders at a program like Antler called the Founder Institute. And uh, which is still around and, and ext- extremely valuable in the same way, right? It's a it's a uh, entrepreneurship boot camp um, that helps you uh, meet potential people you can work with, but also helps you start companies. And I am a huge proponent of of that model. Mm. And and with with regards to um, your program, uh, how are people going to be able to access it? Is it going to be through different 
partner programs, existing platforms, obviously you, you've still got the, you know, the, the Udemy connection there, uh, or is it going to live separately to any of those? It'll have its own separate uh, webpage and, and I'll, I'll, I'll have you share the link with the, with the podcast. Um, awesome. It's called the ideation bootcamp and uh, yeah, it lives on its own right now. We plan, it's a pretty custom experience. Like we spent a lot of time. Uh, I've spent the last eight months diving into every article book uh, I can get my hands on around ideation and how to build uh, companies. I've realized that most of them are really bad, uh, even the ones from the top tier institutions. So uh, I'm not going to name names, but any of the institutions that uh, are really famous for startup advice. I think they mm -hmm. go way to uh, surface level and give really sort of generic advice. And when you actually go to try to uh, action, uh, to take action on the advice they give you, it's very difficult. And so one of the things we've done is we realized we need to go a lot deeper. And so we actually give you tactics. Like if you, if we tell you that you should look for fast growing markets, we will actually show you three to five tools that you can use that enable you to evaluate the speed of growth of a market. And that is something that nobody does. Nobody actually does that second step of showing you the how, uh, mm -hmm. they only show you the what. And so that's what makes this course unique. And it, I mean, it is so tough, isn't it? You know, I've spent the last four years working with, with Virgin Startup, helping, you know, hundreds and hundreds of startup entrepreneurs. And there is, you know, there's never been a time that there's been so much information out there, but to actually have it in an actionable form with the actual teaching, like you say, I, I think that's, that's the big difference because people can get led down all sorts of rabbit holes with, with the wrong sort of advice when they're literally just looking online and trying to find that advice, can't they? Yeah. And it's just hard to interpret. I mean, the advice out there is actually really good, but if you read an article that says, Hey, uh, you know, startups are all about product market fit. And the way to, to identify product market fit is to see if your users are jumping out of their chair when they, uh, are using your product. I mean, if you actually go and start a company, you'll realize pretty quickly that that's very difficult to follow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so how do you navigate what we call the idea maze? Um, it's a, it's a term coined actually by the on deck, uh, people, uh, the idea maze to a point where you're actually knowing how to, uh, evaluate whether or not the jumping out of the chair phenomenon is occurring or not. And that's very difficult. And I just don't even know that. I don't think that our course is a cure all either. Honestly, Alex, I think it's impossible mm -hmm. to deliver that to the level of quality of say, for example, coding education, where I can literally teach you how to code. You do not need to, there's no, uh, there's no there's, there's 25 different ways to teach you how to code. And all of them, if you follow those programs will eventually end in you being a, uh, a decent, um, web developer or an app developer. Whereas in entrepreneurship, that will never be the case. It is an art and not a science. And so fundamentally it is difficult to teach. Um, our goal is simply to provide uh, a lot more detail so that at least you have a set of tools rather than simply uh, sort of high level advice. And that's the difference. And that's why we charge for it. Because I think the truth is the reason that, you know, if you go on YouTube or you go on uh, Twitter and you get startup advice, the incentives for the creators, even the most famous creators in the world are never to put the level of effort and detail that we put into a course, which is mm -hmm. why I believe strongly in, you know, Udemy's model of charging for courses and have, have believed strongly in, in paying for education because when an instructor is getting compensated for it, they can afford to do a lot more work um, and put a lot more effort into the content. And the content is not simply about views. So if you go on YouTube, one of the things, and this is really not about talking about my course, this is just talking about education theory in general. Yeah, yeah. But um, one of the things on YouTube is any YouTube creator is incentivized by what is going to get the maximum number of views. That is not the right incentive that creates the best mm -hmm. quality content for your learning. It creates the best quality content for your entertainment. And so they are, and, and for your, and for what you're searching for. So they will be very good at, if you search something in YouTube, they will rank for it and do well, but will they actually be super valuable in getting you to the final result of, of your, of what you're trying to do, which is usually in learning, it's not one five minute video. Usually it is a months or weeks or, or at least, or, or days long activity of effort, right? Depending on how much effort you put in on a per day, per week or per month basis. Mm. And 
that effort requires someone who's thinking holistically. I want to teach you from soup to nuts what to do. And that's what I think is core to why online education is so powerful and why it's separate and different from all the quote unquote content that's out there because content is not the same thing. It has a totally different purpose and intent. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, there is, is so much advice out there, but the, the fact that somebody could, you know, can learn from you is you, you say it, you know, on, on your website there, you know, founder of a, of a unicorn and also a massive failure. You've seen, you know, both ends of the, of the spectrum. Um, where, where do you think when you, when you kind of, you know, spend you know, time reflecting back on, on what your next moves were going to be, um, where, where have your biggest learnings come from when you, when you look back at those two, two companies and also when you're you know, working with Lyft as well, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's helpful to have both, right? It's helpful to have some successes and, and uh, you know, I would say Udemy, obviously a success. Lyft was a semi-success in the sense that, of course, the company is super successful, but I wasn't a big part of it. And so I, I didn't find a role within Lyft that I could sort of latch onto and I, I decided to go start another company. And so I would say it was a success, but also kind of a failure on my part because I missed uh, what was a, a very big opportunity, obviously. And then mm. Sprig was a, was a total failure. And I learned from all of these things. Um, I learned by doing, I, I love the title of your podcast, right? Screw it, just do it. It's <laughs> amazing you. because the truth is where, where do you learn the most? You learn the most when you are ahead of your skis and you're going super fast downhill and you crash into a tree um, and you realize, oh shoot, like I was going in the wrong direction or I had my footwork wrong or this, I shouldn't have been skiing in the first place. I should have been doing something different. And um, I would say that I've, I've learned most from the moments in entrepreneurship where I have been doing the most. Um, and that's what I really believe. And so I think, you know, and that's why I, I believe in, in the form of online education that I believe in, because I believe the problem with, you know, the university system is they don't teach you by doing, they teach you by mm -hmm. listening. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah, you do exercises that are very vaguely similar, you know, problem sets or whatever that are vaguely similar to what you're going to do in real life, but they're not, uh, they're not actually that practical. And so I'm a bigger fan of, of the pedagogy of business school, although I still think it, it, it's, it's literally like one third as good as it could be. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I learned the most by actually going out and building companies and, and making mistakes, hiring someone that was uh, uh, the right fit and, and learning why that worked and then hiring someone who's the wrong fit and realizing, oh, what, did, what mistakes did I make? And I'm extremely self-reflective, which is probably one of my, my, my greatest uh, gifts that, that I've gotten from, from life. And as a result, anytime I do anything, I can go back and analyze what did I do well and what did I do poorly. And I just do it naturally. And that has helped mm -hmm. my learning tremendously. And when you, you know, you, you, you have reflected back, um, and you look at, you know, Udemy and how, how you started there, I mean, You've, when you when you reflected back, and I can't remember the, the the numbers, but you know how many people rejected you, and you as you said before, you were maybe like you know twenty, twenty one, twenty two years old out of uni, um, and, and however many was it like a hundred investors or more than a hundred investors that you rejected you to start with? I think we got about two hundred uh, no's or or two hundred investors who who passed on the business. Wow, and and what you know when you look back, do you think that that business? it nearly didn't even take off the ground. <laughs> and now it's like a 20 billion company or something like that. Yeah. I mean, probably closer to two, two to $3 billion uh, company. But um, we, when we started, uh, we knew nobody and had no connections in the Valley. Well, actually I had one connection, one or one or two, uh, but my co-founders had none. And one or two is a very small number. If, if you're thinking about uh, how that, how that uh, plays into a, a network that has, you know, 10,000 10, members in it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was very close to failure. I mean, when we started Udemy, uh, when I joined the Udemy team to start the business, this was uh, uh, August, 2009, uh, none of us were full-time on the business. And, and I, you know, I had a, a consulting job and I was flying back and forth from Washington DC to San Francisco, uh, which is a brutal commute. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, on a weekly basis. And then my co-founders had full-time jobs as software engineers at startups. And so for the first six months, we were just hacking away. And I think it was fairly, uh, 
I wouldn't say pleasant, but it was fun. The adrenaline of the effort we were putting in was was really exciting. And it culminated in, in February of 2010 with a feeling that we actually got enough traction with investors to raise money. And so we, so I quit my job. My co-founders couldn't because they were on H-1B visas. Uh, and so, of course, the immigration debate is very close to my heart as a result of this. Mm. But, but they couldn't quit their jobs and, and really work on the business. And, and technically, they weren't allowed to work on it before this date. And so um, I went out to raise money. I quit my job. And it was a big personal risk because my uh, parents didn't come for money. And I, I didn't have any sort of, like, there, there was no way that I would be able to not work for more than a few months uh, without some sort of external support. Uh, I hadn't saved that much money um, and I, my parents couldn't give me any money. Um, I was raised by a single mother. So really when I say my parents, I mean my mother. And so I quit and tried to raise the round and I probably met with 40 or 50 investors during that next uh, week or two. And it turns out that they all said no. And so here we were in, uh, you know, February, probably by this point, March of 2010. And we had, uh, we had myself full time, not earning any, any money and now having to go and, and try and raise money, uh, after having everyone basically said no to us. Um, cause it's probably 50 at that point, And then maybe another 40 or 50 over the course of the six months prior, right. When I was still uh, part time on the business. Mm. And so fast forward, we ended up launching the product in May and had some good, good reception. And then in June or July, we looked at each other and said, well, we've talked to another 25 to 50 investors. I, I can't remember the numbers here, but um, if we don't raise money in the next month or two, we're going to be, we're going to be broke. I mean, we were probably, by the time we ended up raising money in August, we were probably um, 30 grand in debt roughly uh, as a group. And so, um, we were one month away and we said, if we don't raise money in the next month, uh, we are going to quit. Is that what you lucky gave yourself? Us. Literally a month. Yeah. Right. Lucky for us. Uh, some people said yes that month hmm. and, uh, we ended up raising a million dollars. Uh, and actually after one person said yes, it was very easy to get the rest to say yes, because the person who said yes was so, uh, credible and, and sort of well-respected, yeah. uh, Keith Raboy. Um, and, that's, that's it. I mean, that was a huge moment for us as a company because <laughs> I agree. I don't think we would have survived. I, I don't know what would have happened to the company and whether it would have been built, you know, maybe we would have, uh, I would have taken a full-time job and then still had this nagging feeling that we needed to build this company, or maybe I would have just quit completely and we would not have started the company and someone else was going to start uh, a marketplace for online education at that time. I, I have mm. no idea what would have happened, but thankfully uh, for all, for all of us, um, uh, certainly those of us on the team and hopefully thankfully for the people who got to benefit from Udemy's existence. Um, we, we pushed through and were able to build a, build a company and, and teach, I mean, gosh, tens of millions of people, uh, new skills that they can use in their lives. Yeah. I was, I was looking at the numbers and I could, I could, I could find the nearest, I think was January this year where it said like over 50 million students, 57,000 instructors teaching in 65 languages. I mean, does that still blow your, blow your mind when you kind of hear those stats? Yeah, it doesn't feel real at some point, right? It's like they, they make people make this comment in politics that uh, it's very difficult for the average citizen to make sense of the uh, you know budgets of a government and the national debt. And whether it's mm -hmm. one trillion or ten trillion, you really don't know the difference. Well, the same thing is true when you're looking when you're you know someone who came from an immigrant family in the United States and nobody in your family has ever you know crossed perhaps maybe just barely the seven figure threshold. That, you know my parents maybe at one point in their lives and other than that no, nobody's ever crossed that threshold in the history of my family right going back 50 generations and yeah. so for uh, us to cross you know the uh seven figure threshold just in terms of number of students and instructors is is insane and then of course uh for it to continue to grow and 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 just hear the stories, hear the stories from people who say that they changed their lives or they learned X, Y, or Z uh, from Udemy is, it never gets old. No, but, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a really brief one because it's my neighbor, which is literally like one one house over there. And um, she, her YouTube name, is Digi Digital Nomad Girl, you know, she's not even... She's not even 30 yet, yet she travels the world, um, you know, living that nomadic lifestyle, 
literally just making a course, um, putting on Udemy. She has no desire to learn how to market that course. She goes, I just want to travel and enjoy the experience. And, you know, she, like I said, she's not even 30. She came out of uni, I think, maybe five years ago. Um, and she is making, uh, you know, like six figures a month from her Udemy courses. She's bought two ski chalets that they go and spend the winter. She went to Japan for the Rugby World Cup because they could just stay there for eight weeks and watch the Rugby World Cup. Um, and I could, you know, see by your face there, you know, these stories never get old, do they? And it's just like unbelievable that somebody, you've enabled people like that to um, to live the life that they want at the end of the day, literally the life that they want. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it really just doesn't get old. It's pretty amazing to hear stories <laughs> like that. Uh, I'm, yeah. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I've just seen her recently because she, she's been stuck here during lockdown. She literally, um, you know, again, needs to get out, uh, start traveling again, visa purposes and tax purposes and all, and all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, for people, and you, you know, it, being an investor yourself, um, as well. Um, how do you think that's changed at the moment? Because I, I saw an article um, that my last guest, Oliver Cookson, who'd founded a company called My Protein um, and sold it after seven years for, for 58 million. And he just posted something on LinkedIn yesterday saying 200,000 businesses have been started um, in the UK uh, during the last 100 days during lockdown. Um, and a common question I get is, is about investment. And you think, well, you know, is the same amount of money out there? Is it just access to, to it going to be harder? Because you'd assume a lot of investors have had to reinvest money in existing companies to keep those companies going during this period. Yeah. So I, I don't do a lot of investing, actually, Alex. So just uh, to be clear, I do, of course, keep a pulse on what uh, angel investors and, and uh, other entrepreneurs who, who are investors do. And it, it seems as though uh, raising capital today is still much easier than it was in 2008, is what mm. I will say. Right. I, I don't think that that means that it is easy. It is not easy. It is extremely difficult. And it's supposed to be difficult because uh, the investors need to see a return on their investment. And therefore, only a small percentage of people are going to receive investment. And I also don't think it's necessarily always fair either, to be clear. So not everyone who deserves investment gets it and not everyone who deserves investment, uh, who gets investment deserves it. Uh, but I do think today is still a, a pretty good time to raise capital. I mean, as you said, programs like Antler and Entrepreneur First essentially mm -hmm. invest in 50%. I mean, Entrepreneur First invests in 50% of the people who get into the program and they give yeah. you a stipend for the first three months anyways. And so if you can get in, uh, it's a huge, huge advantage. Um, and they, there are so many other programs like this all over the world that have all uh, been created in the last 10 years. And because... Uh, COVID has essentially accelerated our adoption of technology, at least when it comes to technology businesses, this is probably still right smack in the middle of the golden era for starting, starting technology businesses. It might be a divot that is a little bit, you know, 20% down, um, but it'll come back. It'll come back. I, I think I'm not an expert on this, but that's my feeling. Yeah. Um, and just to touch on, you know, what I mentioned before with, with Sprig and for those who, who, who don't know the story um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, when you were at uh, Lyft, you, you, you saw this opportunity. You thought um, that Sprig could be the Lyft for food. You'd seen what Postmates were doing, um, those kinds of businesses. And you, you managed to raise a substantial amount of money, like $60 million from, from Greylock VC and uh, a couple of others. Uh, at what point did you consider that that business could actually fail? I think we always knew that there was still one more hurdle to get over before we were going to be successful, which was nailing the profitability uh, equation. Right. And I was still quite nervous about it. However, there was definitely a time at which I remember an employee asking me, Goggin, do you think this is going to work? And I remember mm -hmm. saying like, 
I actually think there's an, I think I said 80% chance or 70% chance of it working. So I was clearly very confident um, at one point. It, it very quickly started to change in early February, 2017, when our numbers went from growing at about one or 2% a week to declining at one or 2% a week. And I think for at least three months, we didn't think, oh, this business is going to fail. Uh, we, it probably took about three months for us to realize that this was a serious trend that was not going to reverse itself through any um, you know, modest trickery. It was going to require significant changes to the business. Mm-hmm. So probably sometime that summer uh, of 2007, sorry, 2017 is the wrong date. I'm thinking 2016 summer 2016 um probably sometime that summer i realized this is this is this is going to be a real problem and it has it has a chance to fail and mm-hmm. at that point we still had call it of the 60 million you know we probably still had 40 40 million or, or 30 million in the wow, bank really? it was a significant percentage of the capital mm-hmm. and i remember having a meeting with uh chamath to, to his credit chamath is the founder of social capital and was not the lead in our round. So Social Capital is a partnership as any VC firm is, and, and Ted Maidenberg was, was the lead, and Ted was super supportive, but also very concerned. I mean, he, he, was, he was very smart about this. Uh, but Chamath is more brash and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, a personality in and of himself, and, and he told us he, he thought we were going to fail. And I think that conversation, you know, I still regret not, not at least – taking that possibility a little more seriously or, or reacting differently to it. I, I certainly was taking it super seriously, I would say, but perhaps giving the money back at that point would have been the smarter move. Right. Um, I also think that everyone would have thought that we had given up if we had done it that early. So to be fair, the next year of, of basically just uh, depressing uh, attempts to, to <laughs> revive the business was perhaps necessary for all stakeholders to feel uh, to feel good about what we tried, uh, about what, about whether we tried hard enough, mm. but that doesn't change the fact that the the actual smart decision was probably to shut it down that summer. Yeah, and and on the outside, I'm guessing everybody uh, still thinks you're winning. Be that your you know your, your family, your friends, apart from those you know right in your inner circle, maybe your, your partner or somebody like. But from the outside looking in, everybody thinks you're doing really well, don't they? Yeah, they do. She's tough. <laughs> Look, I mean, until until about you know until spring failed, like until it shut down, I was far more well respected and known for spring than I was for Udemy, and I I try not to get too caught up in this like what people know you for, what people think about you. It's just very difficult when you want to go and build things. It's it's very distracting. You know, it gets okay. your ego. But yeah. obviously I'm aware of this and I know what people think to some extent. And I know what, you know, I get questions I get asked if I'm on podcasts or in the press and yeah, everyone thought it was succeeding. I mean, it was crazy. Like, mm. and it was a horrible feeling. Honestly, I, I was really depressed. It was extremely difficult. I would. And, and I think the hardest part were the, the, the hardest part was not knowing what to do next. So I would say, yeah. if, you know, and I think the hardest part is different for every personality type, right? So I have a certain personality and I don't like unknowns uh, a lot. And so uh, I, I get really stressed out when I have a big decision to make that I feel like I don't know the answer to. And I really just don't feel like I have a path to solving that problem. And I kind of know that, that the answer to this is you just have to choose and you're never going to know what's going to happen until afterwards. And so mm. the unknowns of what to do with the company was the primary stressor. But the secondary stressor that was not that far behind, maybe half of the level of stress, I would say, was the fact that everyone thought I was succeeding and I knew I was living a lie. And yeah. um, that was uh, that was pretty stressful as well and definitely got to me on a regular basis. And did, did you confide in anybody at the time or did you literally just, you know, distill that internally and live with it? Well, I think in, in modern CEO-dom, if you will, uh, there are always a set of people you have to talk to, which is great. It, it, I don't know that it was the case. I, I don't know, but I've heard that it wasn't the case in you know the early 2000s or in the 90s. But now, and you know, this was 2000 and. 
2016 and in 2020, it's only gotten better. Um, you know, I had a, I had a CEO coach. I had three different coaches actually at the company. So one for me and then, and then two others who are working at various levels. Um, uh, actually two, two for me and then one who was working with the executive team. So three coaches who are all very strong. Um, I had, uh, investors who obviously knew it, but they're not the perfect person. They're not the perfect people to empathize. Uh, but they yeah. didn't know, and they were there with me, and they felt like team members. I mean, my investors were incredibly loyal and, and helpful. And then my co-founder, of course, was also one of my co-founders was my best friend. And so we, we kind of knew. But I would say that that's, uh, it's still a very lonely job because at the end of the day, everyone's looking to you. You're the decision maker. I, I was very firmly in control of the company. Um and as a result of being so in control of the company, I was responsible for making the final calls here. And if I made a call that everyone else disagreed with, I had the right to do so and they would respect that decision. And I felt that that respect and also the pressure that comes along with it. And you know, I suppose in, in hindsight and you know, with Uber Eats launching, you, you can't mitigate for that happening. And no matter what line of business you're in for, you know, uh, competitor that kind of size launching and the amount of you know, leverage that they've got available to them. I mean, you just can't see it coming, can you? Or how do you react to it? It's Right. So there's two ways to look at this. So just for your audience, the, the reason Sprig failed is because uh, fundamentally uh, it's because Uber Eats launched and, and essentially decimated our business. Mm. Um, that is the, sorry, I shouldn't say fundamentally, that is the proximate cause of failure. Uh, yeah. meaning that it is the cause that actually broke the camel's back. Yeah. Um, however, I don't think that that was the uh, primary cause of failure. So it was the proximate cause of failure, meaning that it is what uh, caused Sprig to fall apart because as soon as consumers had a relatively affordable and quick delivery alternative to Sprig, which, which were two of our biggest strengths, um, people started to move away. And I would say that we also had our own scaling challenges internally. So if there's, if Uber Eats was the primary proximate cause, the secondary proximate cause was that as we were scaling, our food quality was deteriorating. This is a problem. Any food delivery startup tends to have, um, right. uh, any, any food company has, as they scale their operations, scaling and doing it profitably costs, uh, has, has a, has a negative in, impact on quality as anyone here who's been at the chain restaurant knows. Mm. but the primary cause of failure was that we had the wrong model and we were trying to be a startup and in startups, you either have the right model and you win or you, you lose. There is no middle ground. And so, whereas I do believe Sprig, if it were not a startup could have found a middle ground in which it could have been a profitable business and perhaps a significantly profitable business for its founders, it was not likely to be a good investment for its investors. And, as a result of that uh, challenge of having to return capital to investors who have put in $60 million, uh, we had to move forward assuming our plan was right. And eventually we found out our plan was wrong. And so the truth is uh, the real mistake was made when we started the business and decided to uh, build a business that was a vertically integrated uh, food company that created mm -hmm. and delivered the food. And the consequences of that took four years to play out and they played out or th three years, I guess, until Uber Eats launch and Uber Eats launch and essentially showed a mirror to us that mm. we were uh, not as, as valuable or, or unique a product as we thought we were because someone could come around and build a product that was similar in two aspects. It was equally quick and equally affordable or slightly slower and slightly less affordable, but very similar in, in those in the price and, and time. Um, and, and then of course was, uh, had way more selection because Uber Eats lets you, uh, get food from any restaurant in your area. Whereas Sprig was only one restaurant and we made all the food ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great to get your re reflections. Uh, and I know you, you put out a couple of uh, tweets, uh, over the last two months about, uh, you know, one Udemy uh, and, and secondly Sprig there as well, uh, and I know you've, you've you've also you know worked on a number of other businesses, uh, and now you're launching um, your ideation bootcamp. When you 
kind of reflect back what do you, do you have like a favorite child do you do you have one that you know kind of when you reflect back you think that gave me the most joy that was the happiest i was i i don't know about favorite child but the happiest i was was definitely the first two and a half years of sprig it was right. it was delightful uh mm. it was my favorite time i think the team we had built was the best team i've worked with uh, the team at Udemy was particularly good, but I wasn't as good. And so I would say that, that I was too, I was too uh, self-aware of my own shortcomings at Udemy to really enjoy it. And, and also was just struggling to, to sort of find my leadership voice. And at Sprig, I had found my leadership voice and, and had a team that, that respected me and a team that, that was extremely solid. And I thought we executed really well together. And so I'd say that was my favorite time in startups period. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, and look, I'm aware of taking up too much of your time already. So I'll finish up with, with one question because I know you're going to be traveling again uh, very soon as well. Um, so you spent, as we started the podcast, you know, li living nomadically, interested to know, you know, where did that decision come from um, initially, the, the reason for that decision? Um, and would you do it all again? Second question first. Yes, definitely would do it all again. If awesome. you were to ask me what was my like happiest moment in my life, not in companies, I'd probably say, you know, some point in the last two to three years or, or I did maybe, wonder. Yeah, yeah. maybe right now, but, uh, but close to that, you know, and it, it's because there is, there was this, a true level of, of sort of, uh, bliss and freedom of, just going off on my own for, for a few years and exploring the world and, and doing whatever, whatever I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I would say that uh, the reason I did it is I've always been curious of the world. I, I grew up as an Indian immigrant to the United States. My family was 95% uh, of my family members are, are in, were in India growing up and, and are probably maybe like 80% are in India today. And so I visited India on a uh, biannual basis, so every two to three years or so um, growing up. And while we visited India, we also visited other international destinations. And so, uh, you know, my, my family essentially, uh, we didn't have very fancy lifestyles in the United States. Uh, we had a, you know, a normal sort of home and, and whatever, but all of our money was spent traveling to international destinations when we could. So we traveled. And as a result of that exposure and, and the, the fact that I went back to India regularly, um, I was always someone who enjoyed travel and I've always enjoyed solo travel. My first solo trip, I was 13 years old. Hmm. I, uh, my parents and my mom dropped me off at the airport. Uh, some stewardess, you know, basically at that time, the, the, the airline would actually have someone come out and, and greet you and take you from the gate through security to the plane and then drop you off to the, um, to the host, uh, or I don't know the term for flight attendant, flight attendant to the flight yeah. attendant. Um, and then, uh, you would be, you know, looked after by the flight attendant. you got a special seat, usually some, somewhere near, near their station. And, uh, and then of course I, I visited India to visit my family. Um, and that was at 13 years old. And then again, when I was, uh, when I graduated college, I graduated a year early. And so I started my first job five months later. And so for the first three months after I graduated, I spent in Spain uh, teaching English because I, I didn't have the, the money to afford that trip. Uh, so I taught English in order to um, make ends meet. And I uh, spent three months in Spain. And so when I uh, made the decision to shut down Sprig, I immediately knew that I was going to go and travel. There was right. no debate or question. And in fact, I would say it was more a moment of relief. It wasn't excitement. The excitement took a while, but it was a moment of relief that this sort of challenge that had been nagging me for a year and a half finally had a conclusion. Mm. Um, and I wasn't thrilled about the conclusion. I wasn't thrilled to tell the world that I had failed and, and shut down a business, but uh, I was still way more relieved than I was sad about it. And uh, I immediately knew I would take off. And lo and behold, I think it took less than uh, a month uh, for me to, um, I mean, I, I got on a plane that day. That's an, a story for, for another conversation. Um, mm -hmm. But 
within a month, I, I was uh, nomadic, basically. I moved out of my apartment and packed all my things. And where did you, where was the first destination you went to when you jumped on the plane? So the, the first destination, I went on a few trips even before my okay. first international destination. It was, it's a bit complicated as it always is for a nomadic <laughs> person, but the first destination was Havana, Cuba. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I love that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I spent a month. Have you been? Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. It is. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, loved it. Me and my, my wife uh, went there. I think she was pregnant with our, with our first child when we went there, actually. But um, yeah, I, I could totally get into that lifestyle, just, you know, being the, the contrast between, you know, the city with all its kind of, you know, faded grandeur and the, and the cars and the buildings and then being on the beach and literally having the best meal literally from somebody, you know, casting a line, pulling a fish out of the water chucking it on a barbie and just giving it to you there and then you go nothing tasted better <laughs> uh yeah I, I loved havana i i spent about a month in, in the city living there and it sort of was the start to my adventures because mm -hmm. honestly i didn't know how long i was going to stay there when i arrived and i saw the benefits after a month of being in the same house i lived in the same uh homestay for a month uh, I saw the benefits of staying in a place for a fairly long period of time. And I realized that that was going to be the theme of my sabbatical, that I was going to spend not one week in any given destination or, you know, uh, five days or whatever, but I was going to spend a month minimum in a set of destinations around the world. And I did that. And I really got to know places um, on every yeah. continent. Um, mm. And that was really an incredible experience. And, and just to finish up, because again, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, quick answers maybe then. What was your favorite place or experience and where is somewhere that you didn't go that you really, really want to go to? My favorite experience was visiting uh, the Yawanawa uh, indigenous tribe in uh, the Amazon rainforest in southwestern uh, Brazil. I mm. uh, lived with that with a, a vill in a village there for a week. Um, it was sort of, you know, I, I basically split the trip into two different uh, segments. It was either a month in a, in a major city or a minor city, like Havana is not that big, um, mm. somewhere in the world. And then I, I, in between, I traveled. And my favorite travel experience was certainly going to the Amazon rainforest. It was completely mind-blowing to see, uh, essentially to watch what I think was um, – you know what humans some some version of what humans uh lived like uh before you know modern technology of course they have some modern technology they have a motor for their they have clothes um they mm -hmm. use uh mostly hand-me-down clothes from from the u.s and so they do have some modern technology but for the most part they're still living in the rainforest and you know uh it's it's it was an insight into that style of life and it was a very powerful experience because obviously these people were extremely poor and, and, you know, they really are forgotten by today's world. And, uh, so it, it was, it was moving. It was sad at times, but it was moving and, and really powerful. And then you asked, um, what's a place I didn't go to that I would love to go to. I, I would say re regionally uh, the, the place in the world that I still don't know enough about that I'd like to learn more about is uh, the, the sort of Middle East, uh, North Africa world. I, I did spend a month in Beirut. Um, although sometimes I think of Beirut as a bit, a bit like cheating there. I wish I had taken My goal was to spend one month in Beirut and then spend another month in another more uh, sort of uh, non-cosmopolitan city in that region. Um, and that second month didn't materialize for a number of reasons. And so I always will think of the Middle East as a place I need to spend some more time in so I can understand and empathize with that region uh, more. But I, I'm glad I spent a month in, in Beirut. Obviously, that was great, but I wish I could spend more, more time there. Yeah, no, I, like, likewise, I was lucky enough to work with Virgin Atlantic for like six, 16 years after, after university, which is where I met my girlfriend, now wife, mother of my children, etc. And, um, you know, we love to travel again because, we, you know, we're lucky enough to be able to go, you know, anywhere in the world for like £100, you know. Yeah, that's um, incredible. The benefits of working for uh, working with an airline was um, ridiculous, I have to say. So, um, but never flew to the, the Middle East. All I've, all I've done is 
visit my best friend who's actually over in the UK at the moment who lives in Dubai, but you know, that's clearly not, <laughs> no, nowhere near the birthplace of civilization like some of those other countries. Right. Yeah. I've, I've definitely been in Dubai as well. And, and I, I, I think it's a fascinating uh, study in modern, uh, you know, in modern cities to look at a city like Dubai. It's obviously emblematic and sort of the crown jewel of the region in some ways, uh, not the only crown jewel, but one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I was hoping to go to a place like Riyadh or, yeah. um, you know, somewhere in Jordan, uh, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd love to. Um, well, listen, Gargan, this has been awesome. I could, I could, you know, talk, talk to you for hours. There's loads of other subjects I could talk about, um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, startups, travel, you know, success, failure, everything in between. But, um, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, I wish you all the very best with your traveling. Um, and also with your, your new venture and, and anything um, that you decide to do in the future as well. And um, yeah, love to stay in touch. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate the time and I, I, love, I love what you do and, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you. What an awesome story. Uh, didn't disappoint at all was every bit as good as I thought he was going to be. Even better, to be honest with you. Uh, Thought I got on with him like a house on fire and could have talked to him for hours and hours. It's one of those interviews that um, I say, I, I gutted that we couldn't meet in person because I do think you um, you make more of a connection, but equally in the times that we live in, got to do what you got to do. Um, so we hooked up online and I thought it was a great, great conversation. Uh, would love to, to follow up as well and super interested to find out um, when he launches his new project. Um, and how we can tell you all about that and how, you know, people who listen to the show like you and me um, can get involved in it. So, you know, given his background, um, I wholly subscribe to what he says that you learn through doing instead of listening. It has far more impact. And you think of how schools teach our kids, you think of how vast majority universities teach and it is through listening and not doing. And for me, you know, just from a personal point of view, the greatest um, successes I've had and the greatest impact I think I've had in my life has been by doing things. It hasn't been um, learning through actually listening. And I was rubbish at that. I was rubbish at uh, GCSE, O-level, A-level, um, university. I got through them all. But I struggle to learn that way. Personally, I've been far more successful um, out of education um, by learning through actually doing, you know, and I think nothing better to show for that than, you know, the last few years with Virgin Startup that I've been working with, you know, helping over 500 entrepreneurs um, get mentored and access over £5 million in funding. And then again, um, you know, through my podcasting, through the through the agency, through this podcast, through my mentorship program, you know, impacting again um, thousands of people. Um, so I just want to leave you with that learning point from my chat with Gargan. Uh, longer episode than normal, but as I say, I think uh, it was worth all of it without a shadow of a doubt. So I hope you agree. Um, again, let me know give you a shout out on the show. Just scroll down. If you're on the Apple podcast app, click write a review. Let me know what you thought about this. Um, and I will give you a shout out on the show. And thank you so much for your feedback. Have a great week. If you found value in this free podcast, all I ask is that you tell somebody else about it. You don't have to leave a review or write a post on social tagging me in the screw it, just do it hashtag. But if you do, I promise to give you a shout out on a future episode and you have my eternal thanks. I'm at Alex Chisnell on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, plus at Alexander Chisnell on Instagram. Alongside the screw it, just do it Facebook page. This houses the screw it, just do it community and has the most up-to-date information on all things Screw It, Just Do It, including all of our live events. I love hearing from you. If you either message me on LinkedIn or email alex at screwitjustdoit.org, I promise to reply. Just give me a little time.
Lastly, and if you're looking for investment, I wanted to give a mention to Draper Esprit, a publicly listed VC fund that invests in high growth European tech companies with global ambitions. The portfolio includes companies like Revolut, UiPath, Kazoo, Graphcore, Trustpilot, Isai, Revelin, Aircore, and many, many other top European tech companies. Draper Esprit writes checks of five to 50 million pounds, and they focus on sectors like consumer, fintech, health tech, deep tech, enterprise, and SaaS. Their investment team has an incredible depth of experience, both as operators and investors, that helps businesses scale globally. So if this sounds like the sort of investor you want to work with, Get in touch with them at draperesprit.com. That's D-R-A-P-E-R-E-S-P-R-I-T.com. Make the future, make it better, make it happen.